Welcome to Scars to Stars, where conversations and personal stories let us know we are not alone. In this show, you will meet authors and speakers from our books and events as they share vulnerable personal stories to spread hope and inspire you through adversities in your own life. The world is a difficult place. You will find like-minded people here with kind hearts and supportive souls. I am your host, Dina Brown Mitchell. I am a suicide survivor and the founder of the Realize Foundation. I am so glad you are here. Let's dig into this meaningful conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome. And I'm so glad to, to see you all here. So I want to thank you all for joining us today for this very, very important topic. We will have some time for Q&A at the end. So if you have questions, please put them in the chat as each speaker is talking about their organization and the details around what we're all doing to combat veteran suicide. So my name is Dina Mitchell, and I am the founder and executive director of the Realize Foundation. And our mission is to reduce suicide statistics across humanity. In October, we launched the Save a Life Challenge, which is all about having the conversation about suicide and mental health. Our theory, instead of targeting the only the humans struggling with ideation, we spread awareness and education to all humans. So when the person struggling is ready to have the conversation, there are people around them that will understand how to listen and be supportive. So in turn, we stop the stigma. This would cause people to get help when they need it and ultimately reduce the suicide statistics. You can learn more at our website and it's posted. It'll be posted in this post at realizefoundation.org or you can just Google save a life challenge and you will find us there. So today we, I'm so excited. We have guests who are all entrenched in the veteran community and know firsthand how dire the situation is and has been for some time. So I'm going to introduce them to you and let them tell you about what they're doing in their world. And first, I would like to introduce Mr. Clint Bruce. He is a formal special ops officer, a board member for Americans Warrior Partnership and Operation Deep Dive. Yeah, well, hey, it, it's great to be on the call with uh, whoever the audience is and the, and the listeners, but certainly with people who are kind of in the fight, you know, I, I have these three beautiful daughters. And one of the things I tell them all the time, it's like, hey, girls, it comes down to words, work, and wins. And the truth is serendipity has much more to do with success than most people think. But you got to put your words to work to win in the first place. And so for me to be on the call with just people who have thrown their hat in the ring and put their words to work, that's a tremendous honor for me. Um, but like I said, my name is Clint Bruce. I, uh, my background briefly, not that it matters, but um. It'll just affirm that um, I believe everything I'm telling you, and I've alluded somewhat. I uh, um, grew up in Texas, played football at the United States Naval Academy. Um, was fortunate to be part of a really good team. Had an opportunity to play in the NFL. Nobody knows that because I played the same position as Ray Lewis, and he's pretty good. <laughs> I remember being at practice one day going, it might be easier to become a Navy SEAL than to be out Ray Lewis. And, and so I did. Was and uh, so I went through SEAL training in the late 90s, made it, checked into SEAL Team Fun. I've left, went back out in the NFL briefly, 
And then really just realized everything I loved about football was times 10 in military service and in the special operations community and not unique to the special operations community. One of the great privileges of my life would be to interoperate with some of the conventional units and just the courage and valor that I, I found there in the men and women that served all over. It was pretty humbling and, and amazing. When I left service, I came home and, and went into business and I noticed this uh, very disappointing and frustrating trend to just not do Memorial Day the way I needed America to do Memorial Day as a, as a guy who'd lost my friends and knew I was going to lose more. And um, that resulted in starting an organization called Carry the Load, which is just to uh, restore the true meaning of Memorial Day and extend that branch of recognition to all the sacrificial services throughout the month of May, culminating in the military specifically on Memorial Day. In May, we have this wonderful, you know, Cemetery of West Point down to Dallas, Seattle to Dallas, um, Minneapolis to Dallas. And, and for 24-7, people are on the road walking towards Dallas asking a question, hey, who are you carrying? And just listening as people tell us people that they miss. Because the calculus for me with Memorial Day is my friend thought you were worth dying for and they didn't even know you. You don't remember them on the day you're supposed to. Some dying may not make sense to me. And I need that to make sense to me. And it's and it's uh so I was part of that for, for a while and, and kind of turned that leadership over to people who I think were probably more better and talented than I am for the season we were in. And um I always feel like the long term solution often is just work. And I wanted to get to work building businesses that allow veterans to transition and their and their families to transition more effectively that win the war on veteran suicide with the power of daily wins and a good day's work. And in the process of doing that met uh, Jim Lorraine, who is the chairman of America's Warrior Partnership, and and learned specifically about Operation Deep Dive, which I'm excited to share about here in a moment, and went on the board for uh, America's Warrior Partnership, as well as uh, down here in Dallas, there's an organization called the Center for Brain Health and the Brain Performance Institute. And between those two organizations, I felt like I could be a resource as we uh, attacked this concept called suicide from a purpose and an integration and a reintegration perspective. And then from a brain science perspective. And one of the things you can do, and everybody on the phone is a problem solver, who's either watching or about to contribute, but you can't solve the problem unless you know what the problem was. And one of the things Operation Deep Dive, while I was attracted to it is um, through imaging and communication, we can understand so much more about the brain than we could even 10 years ago. But if we're dealing with inaccurate information, we're going to continue to make incomplete, incorrect or incomplete solutions. And uh, the way that suicide was being quantified was inaccurate. And it was no one's intention and no one's desire and no one's design to be inaccurate. But if you're not dealing with good intel, you're not going to fight a good fight. And um, so we wanted to broaden the aperture, partner with Crystal Myers Squibs. They, they just had a heart for this out of the gate. And Operation Deep Dive became a four-year study with the goal of examining how the deceased veterans and, and being one of the things I love so much of what you guys you said with the Realized Foundation is you spread the net across humanity. And if we look at our communities that return to from service as a net, um, the net can only be as effective as the mesh is tight, right? And when you have someone falling, the person who's falling knows they're falling. Self-stoppage is a hard thing when you're falling. So it's the net that saves you. And weaving together better awareness, uh, creating better programs to create a final mission, a tighter net. When the falling person falls, it's easier to catch them and it's easier to detect them and it's easier to, to uh, create these programs that stop that fall. And that's really what Operation Deep Dive was built to do. And, and America's Warrior Partnership is built to 
um, mesh together better community integration and help people understand what it's like being reintegrating as a veteran. What are reintegrating veterans? And Deep Point was committed to giving us better data about that. And one of the things we've been able to do through Operation Deep Dive uh, is we're actually able, for the first time ever, we've been able to obtain all death records from 2014 to 2019 from Alabama, Montana, Massachusetts, Florida, and Minnesota. And these records are provided to DOD for verification for, uh, for service members and, and benefits. And what it allows us to do is really understand um, or begin to project hey, what's the actual number. Anybody who's been in a fight knows that the number of adversaries is a critical number. You know, I, I can't tell you times there's either um, not enough intel for target or the intel is inaccurate, but when you get accurate intel, you can fight well. We're trying to uh, really better quantify and so redefine, obviously, the number of suicide reported. Suicide is somewhat known. But when you begin to look at the fatality of suicide with what we call non-natural cause of death, which we would define as overdose, asphyxiation, accidental gunshot, Drowning, suicide by law enforcement, or high-speed single-driver accident within the last 24 months, the number becomes frankly terrifying. And one of the things Operation Dubai was built to do is get a better handle on that number by getting having conversations with the families of veterans that we lost and determine better determine the, the, the cause of death and whether or not all it's more accurately is, uh, attributed to suicide than it is uh, these just attributed deaths. And, and then we know what the problem is and then we can go about solving it. So what, the biggest way that people can help Operation Deep Dive is, is really um, Operation Deep Dive, the, the more we can talk. That's our goal, just like yours, our goal for every citizen in the U.S. to know about this resource and opportunity and to move from suicide prevention to awareness and action. And, and really do that, we have to have better information. So my ask would be is, uh, go to americaswarriorpartnership.org slash deep dive and, and I'll send it to you so you can spread that out but if you can help create better activation about the veteran that you've lost and, and it, was, it was not suicide as we understand it but it was perhaps one of these other overdose, asphyxiation, accidental gunshot drowning, suicide by cop high speed or single drive in the last 24 months we, we, we would desperately appreciate the opportunity to visit with you that's a lot. That's a lot real quick. And, and, uh, um, and uh, but I, I want to be a, a steward of everyone's time, and I'm excited to hear about what Heather and Drew and Jared are doing. Um, yeah. but, I, but I wanted at a really high level talk. Thank you so much, Clint. It's so important. As I, as I told you, I saw one of your colleagues speaking on Fox News about this, and I was just like, we have to, we have to have this conversation because you know, it's it's devastating enough to think about the numbers we know are real and to think that they're probably bigger is just heartbreaking to me. So Yeah, I would tell you that's one of the things we, we lost a, a dear friend, a really wonderful Navy SEAL named Tyler Black the other day. And uh, it was a post-surgical event and, and all of us were sitting around at this memorial going, how sad, how frustrating is it when we, when we learn that we lost a friend of the first thing we go to? It's like, hey, is that... Did they, did they in their own life? And then you hear this kind of nebulous thing and you want to believe it, but you've lost so many friends you don't know. And, um, you know, we have to stab a needle in the heart. Since people think they don't count anymore because they do. Yes, it's true. I think there's, there's so many people in the world right now, veteran and everyone else that 
has those thoughts right now. Well, so. I don't think the causation is that different. I, I think regardless of the demographic that we're talking about here, I think that the causation of suicide is not not that distinct. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, uh, and that's why I commingle veterans and athletes, and because it's lions and tigers, and there's something that happens. Like Drew, I love looking at your backdrop, and one of the things I tell people is the water, wilderness, and wild things make us feel small but not insignificant. And when you can reconcile yourself against something that's wild, big, or, or, or the water, then it doesn't diminish you and it doesn't diminish your problems, but it does put it back in perspective. And the genesis of all good things is this, talking talking about it with people that care about it more than just use words. Thank you so much. I, I agree with 100%. <laughs> and for me, Personally, nature is my happy place, so that resonates a lot. So I would like to introduce to you all Jared H. Smith, and he is with the Commissioned Officer's Guide. And he believes we should assemble your power team to win throughout military service and more importantly, in the life you'll live far beyond. So Jared, Jared, tell us more about what you are up to. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, really privileged to be here today with this uh, fantastic group of people. And all of you out there, thanks for joining us. Uh, so as Deanna said, uh, I do claim myself to be the commissioned officer's guide. And uh, there's a very particular reason behind that I'll get to in a moment. Uh, I'm entering what, what we call in service the, the military transition. I'm about two years out from my, from my retirement off of active duty. And with that said, nothing I say here today is representative of the U.S. government, the U.S. Navy, or the DOD. This is all me and me alone. Um, but something happened in uh, in May of this of this year, Memorial Day, and I happened to get on Facebook and I saw the um, the 22 push up challenge to bring a, awareness to the veteran suicide crisis, and that prompted me to act. Now I had come across or been informed about about this travesty uh, about a year ago in uh, October, November time frame, it, it, it occurred or I found out about it and I was actually going to do a research paper on it and I didn't get to, but it was on my mind. And what I come to determine was ask myself a question, are, are we doing transition right? And I had an experience a few years ago where I was assigned as a transition assistance program officer at one of my commands. And I helped 10 officers either transition or separate out and or retire out of service. And nine out of the 10, that was a really, really hard thing for them. It was, it was too hard. It shouldn't have been as hard as it appeared to be from, from my angle. Um, but at that time I was part of the problem too, because I was there to make sure that they checked all the blocks to process out of the service. Right. And that experience, reflecting back on that five years later, led me to create this idea of the commission officer's guide. And that same assignment uh, a few years later, but in the same location, um, I had my own challenge with uh, a mental health problem um, based on something that happened at work. And so I, fortunately, I was able to utilize the systems that were in place to help pull me through that. But it took a couple of years. And I think I had to do it in quiet. And like Deanna said, and like, like Clint said a while ago, we've got to, we've got to open up communication about this. We've got to talk about this. And I believe that the veteran suicide crisis and, and, and most any veteran challenges that, 
that the veteran community has begins on active duty and it begins early. Uh, so what I've done with the commission officers guide is, is built out a model that I think we need to be following in order to make sure that we are serving this nation to the best of our capacity to do so by fully utilizing the medical system early and often in service and not pushing that away or avoiding the medical treatment facility to get the help we need physical or mental or emotional um, early on. Um, Cause it took me over 17 years to figure out how to use the medical system on which I finally did earlier this year and got treatment for sleep apnea. Um, whenever I got diagnosed with that in February and got the equipment I needed in March, um, it's changed my life since then. And I think us not utilizing the medical system early and often throughout service is a detriment to our service, to those that we're serving um, in uniform, as well as the citizenry that depend on us. Um, and it's a, a disservice to ourselves. So we got to take care of our health. That's first. The second is this idea of, of the identity. It's uh, the second pillar, I call it, identity, where our our identity is after our basic training pipelines, commissioned or enlisted, um, are tied up in the rank and the, the weapons platform that we employ, and perhaps even the service branch with the the oaths and mottos that we use to you know keep us driven to 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 serve the nation's highest calling, right? We have to get that back. You definitely need to get your your own self identity back well ahead of this military transition period, which I call the transition battle. And for many, that starts after five years in. For others, it starts at 25 or 30 plus years in. Regardless, we need our identity, right? We got to know what it is we're here on this planet for. And I would argue to say that it's it's not just to, to die for the country. There's more to it than that. And that leads into post-service life. And if you haven't found your identity, you're going to have some real challenges um, in that capitalistic economy that we defended. Uh, so that's second. And then the, the third pillar that I reference is the what I call the, the military family wealth picture or military family finance. As many of us know, there's plenty of challenges in that space. Um, and that's that's just not specific to the to the military family either, because as we know our society at large, people are people are struggling and it's based on a lack of education on the systems that we live and work in. Um, from the education system that did not give us the necessary skill sets we need to understand the tax code and pay and the banking system and all of these, um, the retirement systems that we're using, like all these different things that we're not informed about, but we're just kind of told to do, go along with the herd. That's a challenge as well during transition, because if you're not financially set, then you've got yourself in a position where you're having to get a job to keep a roof over the head and food on the table. You're transitioning or retiring, either or. You've got to a standard of living that you want to maintain, and then all of a sudden you need a job, right? So the, those three pillars, health, status, and wealth, I say all reside on a strong foundation of relationships. And through my personal experience over the last 18 years, I've done a terrible job at keeping relationships with people from my commands and my past, uh, and I think that had to do a little bit with the health challenge that I've just overcome this year. I even I started mentoring a, a junior officer who was still in the training pipelines about a year ago, and he sent me a list of um, 10, like 10 questions. And one of them that he asked me, I guess this was March or April time frame, he said, um, what's the importance of maintaining relationships 
throughout your career? And I, I kind of smiled uh, because, you know, a few years ago, I would have had a completely different answer. But today I'm like, it's crucial. It's crucial. It's relationships are what life is all about. So we've got this, we've got this culture where we're focused on the little mission of the day, right? Of the, of the current staff or operational assignment that is our entire world where we're spending 10, 12, 14 hours a day trying to be ready to go fight that next war. But we're doing it at the expense of ourselves. And then we're sending our, our transitioning military members back into society not prepared because they get caught in the, the transition assistance program trap with too much to do too soon. Uh, that takes typically multiple years, if not decades of planning to, to, to really get it right. And we've got one shot to get it right. Okay. So the commission officer's guide is building a super highway for the military transition. And uh, the pre-deployment preparations, planning, and workups for that inevitable transition battle begin when we leave the training pipelines. And if you didn't start then, it starts now. Uh, that way we can prepare our active duty service members to go back to society and contribute to it, uh, knowing why they're here and, and what they're doing and have a um, goal for the rest of their life as opposed to um, simply serving the nation because I, I, believe there, I believe there's more. So with that said, I will stop there and I'll turn it back over to Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Jared. That was, that was enlightening because um, for those of us who haven't been in the military, I have many family members that have been in the military, but not myself even though I almost joined a few times. Um, it's enlightening to hear your journey and how just, I mean, sleep apnea, nobody would think that would be tied to suicide, but I can tell you from not being able to sleep for years and years that that has a huge impact on your mental health and your your overall health. And so it is a big deal. I'm so glad you got help with that. So sometimes it's it's a smaller problem that, manifest itself into what we're talking about here. It did to add though, it, it did lead to chronic exhaustion and severe anxiety. And then that has a detrimental effect on relationships at home and at work. Yes. So that's why it's critical to use medical early and often. It's a good medical system, but our culture says suck it up, buttercup, tough it out. You know, we don't need to go to medical, we got work to do. And I believe that's the wrong approach. It's not taking care of our people. I agree very much. So I would like to introduce everybody to Drew Robertson with Mattersville Vets and PAC-22. And his mission is providing a safe community for veterans to thrive into a sustainable tomorrow. So kind of a continuation of what Jared was talking about. Yeah. Um, so for, for me, Mattersville uh, started back in 2013 when... I had um I wasn't even actually speaking with at the time because he had uh, a lot of episodes that kind of uh, led us to, to become estranged for the last uh, six months. Um, but uh, he, he took his life in, uh, in November 2013. And I not too many people really understood PTSD um, exactly like you said at the beginning. It's uh, it's kind of uh, something that we're, we're still learning so much about mental health and what all that is and what all of it means and, and ways to, to treat it or even to, to treat symptoms. And uh, so I kind of immersed myself into the education side of things and, and 
Um, and it all came down to repurposing, you know, again, this is kind of some transition repurposing, um, finding, finding that purpose that each individual can be passionate about because really every, every single person is different when it comes down to what it is that they might want to do after, um, after their service. Um, sometimes people weren't expecting to, to have to transition because they will, their, their career ends with, uh, TBI or something else that, uh, puts them out on, on a permanent level. And, uh, and that could be the big one of the biggest shocks is, you know, um, going from thinking that that is your plan to now, like, I have to come up with a plan. Uh, and again, sometimes it's, a, it's too little too late, but, uh, the, um, you know, the ability to, to repurpose people by first, uh, taking away the worry of, of having a loop over their head and this being our veterans, again, the ones that are, uh, are experiencing the most PTSD typically can't hold down jobs and, and oftentimes can end up homeless. So. What our program does is we we'll take them into one of our group homes or um, whatever other housing will be available, and their role is to then you know basically save their money, um, whether it be their VA benefits or whatever else, into a permanent housing plan because we don't charge them anything to be here um, except through participation, and that participation can be anything that anybody already wants to do anyways. Whether it be, um, you know, for instance, one of our veterans in this group home that I'm sitting at right now uh, does web design, and uh, you know, he, he can't. Uh, he's physically he has physical disabilities that prevent him from from getting out there and doing some of the hands-on work, building building fencing or doing anything like that. So, you know, but he's really passionate about graphic design and things like that. So, you know, we let him immerse himself in that, um, not only for himself and whatever side business he does or whatever other companies he wants to help, but for our organization itself. To really help drive us along because then he's helping pave uh pave the way for the people behind him by having everything ready to go and knowing what our programs are and uh you know through this uh community involvement and empowerment really by by empowering them to do what it is that they truly love not necessarily just what you know what we need at the time um it really it really helps them start to thrive in a sense that they they um, really can become part of the community and, and sort of keep their mark along their journey but um you know for building a sustainable community and building a sustainable program like i wanted to build and this is all things that i thought would have helped my friend had it you know had i had the opportunity and knew what i do now all the hindsight right we we had to come up with a formula that actually was sustainable to to do so and uh that being mental health sustainability not only for um, and every form of sustainability, it's not just the individual, but the community, right? So mental health sustainability, financial sustainability, uh, nutritional sustainability, and all those things kind of rolled into one. And by doing that, uh, we even had to come up with, uh, again, formulas uh, where some of those can um, cross over. For instance, uh, financial sustainability and mental health sustainability. We ended up with a wolf sanctuary. That helps with their uh, mental health by working with emotional support animals. No better uh, support animal for the warriors than, than wolf dogs, in my opinion. Um, super amazing animals. And uh, by them helping participate in the sanctuary, um, it also brings in a lot of financial sustainability through the form of donations and tours and, and other things that have brought people's attention to our cause. So um, that, as well as you know, uh, getting the every single recurring monthly costs eliminated from these communities as we build them, it makes it to where there's um, there's no resistance on our path 
So every time we build something, it's permanent in the sense that we, we don't take loans. We, um, we build it outright. We buy the land. Um, we hook it up with solar energy so we never have an electric bill. We get wells so that we're able to pull all of our water straight from, you know, from, from the you know, ground beneath us. And, um, and again, then, then, and everybody's got a purpose. Everybody's got, um, their own place, their own space. Um, so that if they, you know, whether they need a break from socializing or they need a break from isolation, um, they're able to get best of the best of both worlds. But I think one of the most important things about what we do, um, and again, you guys kind of already touched on this is, is that we have this open line of communication within this community. Um, there's, by already having the top conversation about mental health, for instance, I went and took mental health first aid instructor training and, and got my certifications and things like that. But we have everybody do it because by doing so, we have this ongoing mental health conversation that anybody starts to get kind of led astray or starts to go down to go, go get to a point where they feel like they're hitting some kind of crisis that that we're able to support each other through it and, and only the way and only a way that a, an empathetic community can. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of thought that this would be a failed model only because you're taking people with mental health, negative mental health, you know, coping skills and kind of sticking them all on one. But if you have the program and infrastructure, if you create a, a path of um, open discussion for them, um, particularly veterans that don't like to talk about it very much, especially PTSD. But if you, if you create the conversation and they see that they're the odd one out, they absolutely will, will start to get to the root and the core of what's been ailing them. And, and then you can really start them on a path of healing. Um, and again, along the way, they get the, you know, the, the awesome effects of working with, with animals and uh, apex predators and things along the way as well, which kind of gets you a, a different uh, type of feeling, um, a way to get out of your own mind and into the moment of, of what it is you're doing. Um, that kind of is, uh, is something that only like really an apex type of, of animal can do for people. So um, again, we also work with veterans and civilians that might uh, have severe trauma on the ones that go on um, these unique experiences to work with these animals. And they come to the community that we're house veterans um, and get that experience. So um we're not only our animals hybrids, but our program is at its very core is all hybrid. It's all, um, you know, again, we're, um, because we, we give everybody that open forum to add their personal touch to things, you know, each veteran gets that, you know, something that they would like to do, um, constantly is just getting better and better. And, and again, the, uh, the positive, that's all coping skills are changed since we started till now. So you know, tremendously that it's really cool to see what people do to, you know, cope rather than uh, with these tools, rather than things such as like jolt your out. Yes. Thank you, Drew. I'm really excited about what you're doing and I've gotten to have the pleasure of going out and seeing the property and it's amazing the amount of work they've already done and animals are, I mean, I have, I have wolves and dogs are in my heart. So it's like, and you put that in the mountains and you, you have me hooked. If I didn't have other stuff going on, I would just come live there and help you. <laughs> I was worried that they were going to start howling when everybody else was talking. So I kept you have to mute my phone. So if you guys are wondering what I was doing, I'm just trying not to get anybody else interrupted. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing what all you're doing. And now I want to introduce Heather to everyone. And, and I have to tell you a little story because 
I met Heather, it was probably about four or five years ago. And I, my husband and I got to go participate in a retreat, which is what she does. And I can't even explain to you the transitions that I saw just in one day. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. And so I'm so excited for her to be here and to tell you what she does. So she is the CEO and founder of Project Sanctuary, and they are changing how military families heal. Thank you, Dana, for having us all together and what an honor it is. So Drew, Clint, and Jared, thank you so much for your service and your sacrifices. I'm always just so honored that I can uh, work with warriors and their families. And you guys obviously are knocking it out of the park and paying it forward in all sorts of different ways. So honored to be here. I started Project Sanctuary in 2007 uh, as a registered nurse. My background was home care and hospice. And I fundamentally believe that everybody has the right and the ability to heal and get better. And sometimes it's just creating that safe space, that sanctuary, so that they can remember their purpose and what they need and their next steps and just honoring who they are as that person. Um, a lot of times we don't take times for ourselves to create that so we can't transition as well. So we, we help do that. We also believe that the whole military family serves and the whole military family should heal together. And within doing that, uh, we like to talk about how you can take one veteran fishing and you give him all the tools and support and he gets all excited and he's got a new lease on life and he comes back home where it's still baseline chaos. And it's just human nature for him to go back into the same normal routine. But what we do at Project Sanctuary, we take the whole family fishing and give them all the tools and support that they need to support one another and move forward. Uh, our six-day therapeutic retreats, we hit on a lot of things you guys have already mentioned. So relationships, communication, post-traumatic stress, how to live with it as a family. Uh, we've partnered with First Command. We do financial classes. Uh, all of our families have a financial advisor available for free after their retreat to help them uh, continue on. We mix recreation with our classes. We have licensed counselors. We have social workers, rec therapists. Uh, it's a six-day, really powerful uh, retreat where we're creating, um, empowering these families. After that, we continue with the journey uh, through our family support program, whatever they may need. A lot of the things that Dina is doing really, really mirrors what we're talking about. And I believe that within the veteran community, that our veterans are the ones that have the ability to stop the veteran suicide. It's not going to be me, but I can give them the tools so that they feel better prepared to ask those hard questions, to talk to their other veteran friends, to be more aware, to uh, reduce that stigma within themselves, their family, and their community. So it's all about that relationship. And so being a nurse, I want to teach that. I want to teach them how they can have those hard conversations, what they can say, what they can do, because it's it's all about connectedness, uh, connecting back with self, family, and the community, giving them that purpose so that when they have their uh, battle buddy who commits suicide, I mean, it just rocks everyone to the core. I've watched it. It is just soul 
crushing to watch a veteran lose one of his battle buddies, knowing that, you know, what what else could I have done? How can we save more? How can we stop this? So a lot of what we do after our families come through the retreats, they're welcome back. They can learn to be better peer mentors. They can continue to work with the organization, whatever they need to do so that they feel empowered and they can uh, actually help. I'm sorry, but Dean, I'm going to dive into the second question. Okay. Which is why personally, this is important to me. Um, we had a beautiful retreat in Colorado at uh, Winding River Ranch and a uh, really tough veteran came through. Uh, he was really struggling, beautiful family, wife. We continued to follow him after the retreat, provided the resources, offered additional support, and it just simply wasn't enough. And I got the phone call. And Bonnie said, Miss Heather, we lost Brian. What do I tell the boys? That is not a phone call I ever wanted to get again. Uh, through the healing journey with Bonnie and her boys, which we're still very aware of, I learned a lot from Bonnie's grief. And Bonnie's been uh, really amazing at sharing her story and the letter she wrote one year post-suicide about how his pain didn't end that day. His pain was just given to the family and that she was left as a half a person to raise the boys. And when you boil it down to that, and when veterans hear Bonnie speak and they see the ramifications and they see what it does to the spouses and to the kids, and the suicide rates now for the kids are more at risk because their dad took that option. And so I don't think, I know veterans just want to stop the pain. They, you know, that's all they want to do. They just want the pain to stop, but it doesn't stop. It really doesn't. So whatever we can do to listen, to open the doors, to reduce the stigma, to empower these families, to empower the veterans, that's what we need to do. Whether it's through recreation or counseling or they want to fly model cars or build things or go fishing. I don't care what it is. We have an obligation to make sure we're listening and we're providing that space so that they can, they can help others. So. Thank you for sharing that. Sorry, I'm all emotional. I am sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It is about veteran suicide and it is tough and it is about having this conversation. So thank you for allowing us to have this platform today. Yes. Are you feeling alone, lacking hope and unsure of the future? So many people are feeling the same way. How could you not after an unprecedented lockdown of the entire globe? The fallout has changed the normalcy we all knew. It's hard when you feel lost and even harder when you're scared to talk about it. We are here to help. At the Realize Foundation, we provide peer-to-peer -peer support through conversations, community, and personal stories. It is our mission to spread hope and let you know that you are not alone. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to become part of our membership community to get the peer-to-peer -peer support you need. Learn more at the call to action link for Scars to Stars membership. I look forward to seeing you in our community of kind souls. Would any of the, would Drew, Clint, or Jared, would any of you like to answer that same question of why this is 
such a personal issue to you? Uh, I mean, I unfortunately have, um, I mean, if you think about this, we hypothetically say the number is 22, which is the reporting number. We have lost exponentially more veterans to suicide than we have the totality of combat and training in such a want. And I look at that as a combat loss. I look at it as a combat casualty. And I remember when carry the load, when I would walk for carry the load, and, um, and I still do, and I love the organization very much, um, I could always see the families of veterans who um, committed suicide and they they would kind of be in the group, but they would kind of be loitering. And I would go to them and I'd like, and, and you know, I was the founder of the organization and who I was. And I'd go, hey, and I, I said, did you, did you lose your loved one of suicide? And they'd go, yeah. And there was kind of this apprehensiveness. And I would look at them and go, can I just tell you that I consider that a combat? And I consider that um, more, an equally and potentially more harmful combat, hurtful combat loss because we recognize we're going to lose, lose friends and loved ones over there. That's just part of it. That's war, right? But to lose them when they're here, when they're supposed to be safe, that's a, for me, that feels like a leadership thing. And um, you know, Chris Kyle was a dear friend of mine, and he and I used to talk about that. And I was talking about talking to Tay, his wife, the other day. Just talking about the thought of losing someone here post service should be incomprehensible to leaders. Um, and so we have to do with the look at what we're doing and know that to a percentage it's not working. And on the X in a fight, like you don't stop, like you just find a new way to do it because you got to win and have that same sense of urgency, same sense of creativity, and same sense. I mean, the stuff I've, I have so many friends that have gone to Win River and they come back and and, and probably, Heather, we have overlapping relationships that I'm not even aware of. Um, that, uh, in, um, so yeah, I've got those stories. Um, hey, we, we, we lost another one. And, uh, you know, we have to do this to figure out what to do next. And that really kind of resource and encourage. I, I got to believe if you're watching this, then this is a problem you're interested in solving. And so encouraging each other to continue to stay in, to do one more, one more of this, one more of that. And remember why we're doing it in the first place is really important. I was going to, I was going to actually add to that. I mean, Eric, cause again, it's, um, it is a leadership thing. And unfortunately there's so much, stock and i and i know that this probably sounds like a broken record to many but uh you know the inaccessibility to what is supposed to be available to veterans is i think one of the one of the biggest insults as well and you know i know that and, and i hate bringing this up and i hate being the one to kind of throw those out there but the va's got some great individuals some great people but they don't have a great system that said that very system itself has been failing them, especially in men around mental health. And I, I, you know, I don't mind being the one to say it, you know, and I'd love to share this data with you because, you know, I, we, uh, some of my veterans that are, that are housed here, we put together a video that, uh, you know, was basically talking about what it's like when a, a veteran's in a pit and, you know, when they're trying to, to climb, you know, climb their way out of a pit, you know, and uh, just the just the way it feels approaching the the VA for for help in a situation like that, and that they're just throwing pills or just you know um, told to to do, 
you know, relevant things that, that don't really get to the root of what it is that they're dealing with. And it's, um, you know, I don't know if it's an accountability thing, if they, if they feel like if they, if they talk about, you know, mental health more that they're taking then taking accountability for it, but the lack of leadership and the lack of acceptance of accountability for, for a lot of these symptoms and, and things are, are literally killing people. Like they're literally killing our veterans by, by not addressing it, by not having, having these things in place again. I, I could beat down the walls of the BA and tell them what we're doing and how many lives we've saved out here uh, without any help from them. But the cost that it costs us compared to what they spend to get little little done in many cases is staggering. I mean, uh, eventually somebody's going to have to look and say, you know, well, what programs, you know, why are we putting all this money into stuff with results not panning out? Because <laughs> it's not panning out. And again, I, I don't want to say that, again, I don't want to say that the VA individuals don't have big hearts, the ones that go into it. That's why they went into it in a lot of cases. And that's why they go for the job and they want to go in and they think they're going to change something, but, but, but they largely can't um, because there's already so much bureaucracy in place that, you know, um, they're, they're, you know, they're, they, they're going to keep taking everything out of a textbook from, from some other bureaucrat that hasn't lived or experienced what, what the need is for the situation. So, you know, and that's the, that's the leadership failure is so much faith in bureaucracy and so little in action and activity like the people that are on the call, you know, or doers and sayers. Yeah, Dina, it, this is important for me, to me, for, you know, not only the fact that I, I came through a very dark time in my life or something that shouldn't have been dark, but while I was at that assignment in a sign of collateral duty as transition assistance program officer, a former Marine took his life while I was at that command. And I had no idea why at the time. Right. And I didn't, I didn't know this man. I talked to him a couple of times, but whatever, you know, whatever challenges he brought with him from active duty into his post active duty life stayed with him and wound up overcoming him. So that combined with me being a part of the problem during that assignment, right? The bureaucracy of check the blocks, make sure that men's done so that these po folks can go on with their lives. That was the problem. And to have recognized that this year and to stay quiet about it and not try to share the knowledge that I have acquired myself about what I think is, is a major problem, setting our active duty up for post-service life, is a disservice to, one, the people I've led in the past, two, the people I'm serving with today, three, my leaders, who all of which are going to get out of service one day, and to continue to wait until 18 to 24 months out to begin these intentional, informed transition preparations would be a travesty. So as a leader, I'm leading. Thank you, Darren. Andrew and Clint, for your comments. Um, I think what came up for me listening to all of you is that there's a really high percentage of suicides that happen in a 60-second decision. It's not, it's not always something that people plan or, you know, they might have ideation for a long time. But it's, I mean, even in my own case, it was a, it was a very last minute decision. And that's the hardest part for me is because 
we can have the community, we can have the tools, we can have the conversations, but it only takes a minute for someone to be in a bad place and make that decision. And so, you know, I haven't figured out how to fix that, but that's, that's really important. And I hope that I can keep working on it. <laughs> okay, I think, you know, I think it's, it's, it's one of the things that I think it's the bad decision you don't come back from. You know, there's bad decisions you all make them. And there's bad decisions you come back from, bad decisions you don't. And you, um, but one of the things I, I love about what Chucky and Mary's work partnership is you try to metric hope. Because despair is the precursor. <laughs> the absence of hope is despair. And it, and, and I, I, I've got some really, really decorated guys that I get to work with. Two guys that fought in Restrepo. And one of the things I tell them is like, hey, if today didn't suck too bad, you give tomorrow a shot. So the trick is to make today not suck. And today could be great. That, that I'd love for today to be great. But as long as today doesn't suck, you're going to lay your head down and go, all right, I'll give tomorrow a shot, right? And that's it. I'm trying to create that. And I have a whole language for daily wins and a good day's work because I grew up on a scoreboard. I grew up, I grew up, you know, as an athlete and being able to look, you know, I get feedback every play as a player on the sidelines in between series at halftime from my coordinator or my coach at the end of the game. And certainly in the combat profession you get feedback pretty quickly and then all of a sudden i'm outputting this effort and not getting so effort is a ping and outcome is a response and when you transition in the private sector those responses are far delayed and there's a currency and there's a deep wiring issue there and that you're sensitized to a particular feedback loop and that feedback loop gets disrupted then it gets disoriented if that goes on long enough then despair sets in and despair sets the stage for the bad decision you don't come back from um, so disrupting that decline is powerful and in, in, in these events, Heather, you know, um, and that's one of the things that, one of the things that carry the load we did before I retired and, and it, it, like, at the end of the day, you have to show us who has the problem for you, who has the problem after you. We care about the continuum. Like we, we, this is not, I mean, these problems are big. Who's got it for you? Who's got it after you? Because we're kind of like a, I, I some of y'all are old enough. I don't know if all of y'all are old enough, but just you know, hands across America. I mean, but it was literally, it was like a, literally, it was a con- connected, you know, we already held hands across America. It was very literal, right? And imagine doing something like that. And again, I, I loved your picture. Uh, just kind of the, the if you're, I've, I've haloed a lot of times, right? And there's times when your shoot's malfunctioning and you, the concept of self-stoppage is very appealing. Like, I would really like to stop myself, but I can't. No, I don't have the ability. I don't have the means. I've got to figure out how to do it. And that's where the net comes in. The net is, like you said, spreading awareness across all humanity so we can create a better catch net. And that's what, you know, deep dive is creating good intelligence to do that. Commissioned officer's guide. I mean, I, I don't even want to tell you how long it took me to get my medical stuff. And my my medical record looks like a yellow pages in this thick, right? And as an inherently impatient person, being uh, capable of enjoying the inefficiency of the process, I was like, yeah, listen, I can get three more jobs. I'm thinking sitting in this waiting room. That is, you know, so, you know, here you are 15 years down the road and you haven't dropped your papers. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it, it has to be more agile process. But one thing that fascinates me as a guy as an entrepreneur is that the, the system is a lot of times we use in the military. Again, due to your point, it's not an absence of heart or desire or the 90% of people in the VA are trying to the best they can where they are. But 
the fact that you can't fire people quickly for being incompetent inside the government apparatus is that's a bad deal, man, because pain teaches you lessons, right? And, and a lot of the systems we use would not survive if, if you're a publicly traded company, you couldn't use these processes and systems because your shareholders would revolt and you would be fired and you would reach your fiduciary responsibility and go to jail, a nice jail, but you still jail. And so we have to have an element of that same ruthless efficiency when it comes to the systems. We're asking those who serve the five and two. And I just, that, that whole 60 second thing really resonates uh, with me. And one of the things when I used to lead peer mentor groups and, and listened more, uh, I'm certainly no expert, but I could watch some of the veterans who, who were in leadership within my organization and take accountability for themselves and know when they were going down that rabbit hole, when they were in that free fall. And they would call and say, Miss Heather, I'm in a free fall. And I'm like, what do we do? And he said, I've already asked my wife to take my guns. I've already called my counselor. I've already called these two buddies. I've already done this. So teaching people as they're in that fall and, and empowering the family and the friends, hey, you know, your battle buddy over here, he, he's not been doing well or he's not been showing up. Hey, let's, hey, let's all take him out to lunch if we can anymore. And of course, COVID has amplified all this. It's amplified the isolation. It's amplified every excuse every veteran wants to give. And so it, it's up to us just to be more on point, to, to ask those hard questions, to check in on our friends. And if we need help, to reach out to those that we can trust and say, hey, I'm going to need a little extra time here. Well, and to create a language, a codex, a lexicon that allows you I was downstairs yesterday with a couple of our veterans and I was telling them, like, you know, what I learned very early as a transitioning athlete and transitioning operator is I got to be around people who get what I don't know how to say mm -hmm. until I figure it out or until I just don't have to say anymore. And this is where I think the wild things become amazing is you can have a powerful conversation with a wild animal and not even say a word and they know when you're lying to them. And that's why I think equine therapy and canine therapy and, and, Wildlands therapy. But again, to your point, you've got to have diversity. If I said tap rack bang, diversity, anybody who's ever carried a gun in their hand, they know the precursor that has a malfunction. And we got to have the same type of, are you okay? You know, I'm not. But here's how I articulate that. Here's how I signal that. Here's, I know what happens next, right? If you look at free diving, free diving is really interesting. Like you don't, you don't win when you break the service. You win when you break the services of free diver and you demonstrate cog a cognitive ability to hold your thumb up and say, Hey, I'm okay. Like you can you can pop above the surface, go deeper than anybody else, but if you don't come up right, you lose it. So we got it's that final one percent of externally acknowledging that I am okay or I'm not okay, and what can I do about it? Yes. Agreed. And I think, you know, for me. I think that the other the other important piece that we're not talking about here is addictions. And I know that can be a whole nother conversation by itself. But when you're when you're in that pain and you're using other things to to try to make it better, that takes you down the rabbit hole we're talking about as well. Even if, you know, no matter what your situation is, there's a rabbit hole. And I think that that 
for all of us to understand that the signs of that and and the reason I'm saying this is because I have personal experience with it. And if I would have understood what what I was doing and that I was in pain and that I was drinking to keep the pain away, then I probably would have gotten help before I got to that point. But I didn't understand that. And I know people around me saw it. So it's it's like, do the people around us also just notice when our behavior changes, like you're all talking about, you know, but that that could be a part of it too. And I just want to mention that because I think it's important. Daniel, that's a, that's a great point. I'd like to connect that back to what Drew was saying a while ago about all the services that are available, both government and not. And, you know, what really took me down this path of the commission officer's guide is the fact that there's what, 45,000 plus free veteran service organizations out there offering services. When we put a, a veteran in that environment, and then on top of it, we dump on them this big long checklist of things they need to do for transition. Where do you go? What do you do first? Right? Where's the, where's the guide to help? Right? Where's the team? And I relate this back to, to every, every mission, any warfare area from any branch ever went on during our entire service times. We did it on a team. We didn't go it alone. That would have been a suicide mission. So that li those little missions that we took on throughout service time, year after year, decades after decades, we planned for them on a team. We worked up for them on a team. We executed them on a team. But we're taking this approach to our biggest mission of our military career, transition, and we're tackling it alone with more resources than any of us can ever use and without a team to help us win. So, so that's the approach, right? It's assemble your team early, no matter your time and service to date. If you don't have a team yet, build one now. Start building it, plan, prepare. Right. When that transition battle, when it comes, it may come unexpectedly if you get hurt, right? And you have to be medically discharged. Or if you decide, you know, five years in that that it's not for you. Well, you would have been planning for five years and it's not a surprise, you know, that's coming seven months later. So we we take this idea of the team and the what I call what, what we refer to as the military readiness weapons cycle. All right. We apply it to our individual selves. And the, the military's not going to do that for us because that's not the military's mission. Military's mission is to go break things and, and kill people, right? That's what the nation charges us to do, right? And deter against that, if at all possible. That's the goal, not to have to go execute, but to deter against it. But I think we need to apply these concepts that we are so familiar with um, with our weapons platforms to our individual selves, assemble teams around us with the family, Heather, right? Family teams to <laughs> approach transition, as a unit, right? Not siloed as our own individual family, right? And not only depend on free hand-me-outs from a scarcity mindset, but pay experts to help you go faster, right? My business is a for-profit business at a very, very reasonable rate because I want veterans and active duty to have an abundance mindset, not be strapped by, I don't have enough cash to do what I need to do. You know, we need to get over this. Let's wait three hours at IHOP for free pancakes 
on Veterans Day and Memorial Day and instead make pancakes ourselves at the house and pay somebody to help us live better lives when we need those services or products. And it's a radical approach to what to what I've I've come up in over the last 15 or 20 years, right? Um, but I think it's a necessary one to empower the veteran and empower the vet, the military family to live life to the fullest and not live a scarcity mindset of, of there not being enough. But but thanks for that. It's just having access to so many resources, whether it's an addiction we've got or a, a challenge that we need help with, you also need somebody to help you navigate all those resources so that you can do it efficiently and use your time wisely. Because time is our most valuable asset. And I think we lose sight of that in this culture where your time is owned by others for the, the duration of your military career. That's very true, Jared. Thank you for that point. Because I think, you know, I've been learning a lot about mindset this year because for 30 years, I was so busy in a career and owning a business that that was the last thing on my mind. And it, it is true that that there's work you can do around your mindset that completely changes your life, or it has in my case anyway. Um, and And I think it's, you know, for a long time, I thought it was just kind of something people did and I didn't think I needed it and I didn't think it was important. And I, I, I've changed my mind about that. And I think it is very important. So I would like to ask you all one more question and say, like, if you could, if resources were unlimited and you could have whatever you need to be able to help veterans in these situations moving forward, like what would you need and what do you think is most important in your organizations to do that? Who wants to go first? <laughs> well, I don't mind. Go ahead. All I was going to say is like we, uh, and I interrupt apologetically only because I, I've got a hard stop here, but I would, ask you, I would ask anybody that listen to go to AmericanWarriorPartnership.org slash deep dive. If you're in a position of feed intelligence and information and data that can be helpful in changing the way we do things and more accurately representing the problems, we can distribute, you know, what's needed into the communities because people are like, how do we make that net tighter, that mesh finer and uh, catch more people in, in, you know, in that fall. So, I'm grateful for this. This is a great opportunity. I'm sorry to have to uh, leave the call. I'm excited to hear the notes following this as we kind of wrap this thing up. And and uh, you know, one of the things I, I tell people, um, I learned this very early at the Naval Academy. You got to have to find this battle cry, this thing that's just yours. And and mine became hold fast and stay true. And hold fast was, you know, when the waves rise against a ship, you got to look for something to hang on to and you got to hold fast to the things that work and then you got to stay true to where you said you were going where the waves came in the first place. And so I just encourage all of y'all to hold fast and stay true. And one of the things I think we all have to recognize is we need to be willing to not see the fruits of our labors and just know, especially when you're treating invisible scars, you got to be okay not seeing the fruits of your labors and just trust that uh, it's, it's a worthy mission and it is. So I appreciate y'all. Thank you for the opportunity to be on this. And uh, there's work to be done. Thank you for being here, Bruce, uh, Clint. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, Heather, how about you? Yeah, and I'm also with America's Warrior Partnership. So it, it there is a lot to be done with collaborating. And Drew, I am so wanting to come hang out with you. 
and see what you're doing. Oh my God, that looks amazing. I've already texted two vets and I'm like, look him up, right? He's in Colorado. Holy cow. Um, I showed them earlier before you, uh, the rest of you guys came on, but if you actually knew what was on the other side of this railing, you'd see that we have our alphas just kind of walking around down there watching us. That's uh, Cherokee, the alpha female. And Apache's over there laying down by the gate. Anyways, but those are two 90% plus uh, Arctic timber wolves that uh, they are... They are kind of like if you were if this was a video game, they'd be like the final boss, you know. Uh, and uh, it's really cool because they're uh, um, you have to earn their trust and you have to earn their respect to be able to ever go in the alpha pen. I maybe take a handful of people in there at all. They had to get to know them. They had to earn their respect, and and you have to really, really center yourself before you can walk in there. Um, because you have to, you know, think about what to do or what not to do <laughs> if he was to do something or they were to do something because that's their den, that's their home. So again, it's, uh, it's like you was talking about earlier with the, uh, animal therapy and, and now equine therapy and, or canine therapy In this form of canine therapy, it's much different because there are much different behaviors and, and again, it comes from a bond and it also comes from certain vibrations and, and really if you. Um, don't go in there respecting the situation. Uh, it's not going to be good. So you can't be in your head about um, trauma. You can't be in your head about your depression. You can't be in your head. You have to let those things go. And what it does is it starts to condition your brain a little bit towards, you know, not necessarily, you can't make a way, trauma go away. You can't make memories disappear necessarily. But you could definitely, again, practice doing other things, which you know, leads to more of that rather than more of the, the focusing on the trauma or other things. It's really, it's one of the most amazing things to watch veterans uh, or civilians or, you know, um, people in the, and, uh, in the mental health field to have the interaction or work on, you know, working their way into the alpha pen or some of the, some of the um, uh, more uh, dominant male, you know, pens, because again, you kind of see like this, some weird and only realize that they're not as in danger as their mind built up before they walked in there. And then they're just like, wait, okay, as long as I respect this animal, they respect me. So then they just focus on that, on, you know, and again, keeping that, keeping that center. And somebody that might have been in a, in a crisis depression on arrival, um, looking, looking like they want to do cartwheels out of this place because of, of the effects that the, these animals have. Um, and that's not just like, you know, yesterday's veterans, you know, the ones that, that just, you know, are, are still in transition home. Um, there's a, a Vietnam veteran that was one of the first tours I ever took. It was one of the most amazing experiences for me because that was when I first really, really saw like the, the medicinal value of everything that we were doing. And uh, he, uh, he suffers from Agent Orange, lung cancer uh, from, from Vietnam. And uh he he's already he, he's not he's, he wasn't doing very well uh his daughter was setting uh, setting things up her grandchildren were volunteering here or i'm sorry his grandchildren were volunteering here and uh so his daughter arranges it with me to do a tour before we were ready we were still moving wolf dogs over here and uh she kept canceling on me and i'm like man what gives you know like come on i you know i'm trying to get volunteers out here and get this work done 
And then I realized, oh, okay, like she, she calls and says, hey, you know, some days he's just not able to get out of bed. You know, it's so bad. Like, and so I was like, oh, okay. So then I was just like, you know what? Instead of me setting aside a bunch of time, you tell me when you can make it up here with them and I'll just make it happen that day. Yeah. So she did. She did. Finally, um, after like three attempts, he was like, good to go on a, on a trip out for the day, comes up here. And I mean, his, I, I take him into the first him. His face was all red. I mean, he looked sick. Like he looked genuinely sick. And uh, to, um, so I open up this door to this cabin and, and uh, that's attached to one of our, our wolf pens and, and two wolves just come jumping right into the cabin. And what was, what was incredible was the animals too. They just right to, right to, right to the guy that we're talking about. There's a whole family in there, but both of them are just like right glued to this guy. And, you know, um, and the one that's head shy, one of the, one of our most head shy animals went through crazy abuse and trauma and everything else. You know, goes up to this guy and, and licks his face, which we had been working on for, you know, a couple of weeks already of just like bonding and, you know, looking for some kind of affection at all. Like, and, and he's just, you know, but uh, very, very head shy. And this guy he's never seen before, this veteran, you know, this hero comes in and, and it's like the animal sensed and they, and they knew that he needed that. And again, somebody that looked like they were struggling to, to get out of the car. So, I mean, it was struggling to get up here for three you know three four times again looks like he was gonna car wheel out of here like i was just like man somebody stop this guy he's ready for a night on town because you know with everything that he's gone through and to see that that shift and you know i'm told for some people even in the worst of condition it lasts for days the effect of this place um and the vibes and the you know and the, you know the emotion and the emotional aspect i mean people are carrying it with them for, for some time and and uh it's incredible it is an incredible place. I can't wait to come back. And um, yeah, you're I, welcome. By the way, uh, you, you other guys, uh, awesome. Thank you. We're we're in the. Um, if you ever look up Deckers, Colorado, Deckers, Colorado is about three point four miles uh, north of us on uh, Highway sixty seven. Um, it gives you an idea of, of where we're at on um, on a geographical level. It's a little bit of a drive. We're forty five minutes from anywhere. And that's still about an hour from, from somewhere. <laughs> that's true, but it's all beautiful. And it's like a cathartic experience just to get to you. And then, you know, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. I had, I had Huskies for 15 years and I'm, I also spent some time in Alaska and, and got to study wolves a little bit. So I'm, I'm, Yeah. You know how I feel about wolves. <laughs> anyway. Not to forget Gus, though. Gus is the uh, PTRSD service German Shepherd that lives here on the, in the group home with the veterans. He's the only non-wolf guard on the, on the spot. But, uh, but he's PTSD service trained. So, yeah. Working on your problems, he likes to listen to them. That's awesome. So, Heather or Jared, do you guys have anything you want to say about um, resources or anything that your organizations need to move forward with your plans or anything around suicide? I would just, uh, I'll keep it short because I know we're running out of time, but yeah, projectsanctuary.us. And whether you support us or you support Drew or you support Jared, I don't care. As long as you're helping military families and you're paying it forward, I don't care. Um, but get involved. Check out these programs. Check us out. Um, see what you can do, see what you can learn so that you can better understand 
veteran suicide and what's going on, and then you'll know how you can personally help. But we always need volunteers and we always need people to expand our mission and let other veterans know it's not okay to spiral down. It's not okay to stay stuck in your basement. There are programs out there that that work and there are people that care and spread that message. Mm -hmm. Thank you. How about you, Garrett? Yeah, I guess from a from an entrepreneur standpoint, which is what I'm aiming to become so that I can generate cash flow and then do like others say, pay that forward, right? Through nonprofits and the like for people that, that can't afford it. I mean, what I could really use was it would be a six-figure grant from somebody out there to pay back office personnel to take care of the business stuff that has to happen for a business. And then I can focus on the message and, and impacting impacting lives and military families, right? So I am looking for resources in that arena because starting a venture like this on active duty is extremely challenging. Like we have a very demanding workload as well as doing this on the off hours is, is challenging. But I recognize that to try to wait and, and establish or start a business six months before you get out of service, that's a bad plan, especially if you don't have unless you're not already financially free for the most part, right? So that's why I started this early because I recognize we've got transition all backwards. We're waiting until the back end to start thinking about it on health and status and wealth, building the relationships we're going to need eventually to go out into society and work at a corporation or in government or become entrepreneurs. So I would ask that anybody that's listening today or hears us in the future, that if you've got service members in service or if you are a service member, that you act now and then you go take care of our people by prompting them to act. And what we've got in common, veterans and active duty and the families, is transition. We're all going to transition one day. That's the common thread by which to start conversations and assignments. What are you thinking about transition, right? Yeah. Again, it comes back to communication, building relationships. All right. Let's have fun in this life because that's what it's here for. Absolutely. So um, that's that's my ask, Dina. So thank you, and it was a, a pleasure with the uh, the other guests on here. Heather, your your comment about the impact on the family is going to carry forward with me forever. That may become a a a main part of my message because that is so important. We include so important. the pain doesn't stop; it's transferred to your family. We include uh, we include as uh, family. It's when we do uh, the tiny house, tiny home housing for veterans. If they have a family that needs to come in for the same reasons, so that they can go through it together, the worst thing you'd ever want to do is separate. Uh, you know, a loving mother or father that's that's going through crisis from their loved ones. That that just makes things worse. Uh, and it is a thing that the family should go together. I agree with you guys both. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jared. Thank you, Dana. Wonderful job. I just want to thank I just want to thank all of you for being here today and having this conversation with me because obviously I am super passionate about it, but I have not been in the military myself. So I um I really appreciate all of your input in this conversation. And thank you to the viewers and the future people who will be watching this video. We really hope it will help you. And I hope you would reach out to any of us if you have questions or you need help. And as we all understand, this year specifically has been very difficult for everyone. The percentage of the humans struggling with mental health this year is unprecedented, and the holiday season is upon us. So please reach out to those that are close to you 
and have the conversation. Maybe let them know what it looks like when you have a bad day so they know how to support you when that happens. And hopefully this year, if anything is a blessing out of COVID, it's the fact that I feel like people are talking about mental health more, which will will help us get rid of that stigma and help people get the help they need so they don't stay silent and at risk. And with that said, this panel discussion was the start of a series, and we're going to have two per month starting in January through April. And we're going to have different topics. We're going to, in January, we're going to talk to parents and we're also going to talk to youth. But you can follow our website at realizefoundation.org or you can, um, you can also just Google Save a Life Challenge and find us. So I hope you will subscribe, donate if you're able, and join us for the next panel on January 14th. And we wish everyone a happy holiday season. And I pray for all of you to stay safe. I'm so happy you joined us for this conversation. My wish is that you found comfort and hope in your own unique situation. If you resonated with our message, please head over to therealizedfoundation.org where you can apply to write your own story in one of our books. You can also download our 60 Ideas for Self-Care on the resources page. I can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, you are not alone, you are worthy, and you are enough.